Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very, very excited to be here. I'm excited for multiple reasons this time. I'm excited to be here recording another Midnight Myth podcast. I'm also excited that the 2020 U.S. election is Thank goodness over and that Joe Biden has won and will be the next president of the United States. He'll be our next minister of magic, if you will. And I couldn't be happier to announce that on the Midnight Myth. You may have noticed we've been running a public service announcement encouraging every American Midnight Myth listener. And we do realize Not all of you live in America who listen, but predominantly most of our listeners are in America to go out and vote and you went out and voted. And I'm just really happy about that. But you're not here listening to the Midnight Myth to listen to Derek and Laurel wax about politics. You're here to listen to us wax about storytelling. So Laurel and I, as many of you know, we're about to have our first child in exactly eight weeks if the doctor's timeline is to believed. And we sat here thinking about, we have about eight episodes left to do before the baby is born. What do we want to do? And we realized there are eight Harry Potter movies. And as many times as we have referenced, talked about, or inferred lessons from Harry Potter, we haven't really done a full deep dive into Harry Potter. And in further coincidence, Laurel and I have just listened to the entire Harry Potter series on Audible. So we're fresh off of listening to them on Audible. We have eight weeks left till the baby is born. We decided we're going to do Harry Potter and the Midnight Myth. Yeah, it's a really exciting project. 
This is after last year around this time, we started going through all of the original trilogy of the Star Wars movies uh, and just did those one by one. And then earlier this year, we went one by one through all of the Lord of the Rings books. And that has been a really rich experience for us going through these series that are so beloved for both of us with a more critical eye than we've taken to it before. So uh, while we have done episodes on Harry Potter before, we've never gone through in sequence and said, okay, let's sit down with Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Let's sit down with the Chamber of Secrets. So that's what we're going to do. We are going to primarily, I think, talk the movies. But uh, for me, it's really hard to separate those things out. They are so deeply intertwined for me. So there may be moments when it's worthwhile to reference the books uh, and how they differ or how uh, one particular character may be interpreted or elsewise, but we'll primarily be going through movie by movie, at least to provide some structure. I just do want to reflect, though, the very first episode of The Midnight Myth was January of 2017. And oh my God, we were so much younger then. We were so much greener. We had no idea what we were doing. And it's a little cringy to go back and listen. Well, and also to point this out, we posted that in January of 2017, but we recorded it like weeks earlier because we had no idea how to publish a podcast. We were so nervous too. We were like, are we sure we want to put this out into the world? But we were doing that right on the verge of the inauguration of uh, President Donald Trump right in the wake of the 2016 election. And that first episode was heavily uh, invested in a Harry Potter character. We talked about iconic villains like Voldemort. So here we are again in the wake of an American election, revisiting the Harry Potter series with a little bit of a different outlook. Um, You know, the the work is going to begin again tomorrow. You know, today is a victory. Today is a really good day for a lot of us. And for Derek and I, this is a day that we're celebrating. Uh, And tomorrow we're going to go out there and and keep at it and keep trying to make this world a better place. Um, And I hope that you will all join us on that journey. But it's kind of cool to see those milestones and see how this particular story about this boy uh, who grows from being a scrawny kid in a cupboard under the stairs goes from being that uh, to becoming a powerful wizard and defeater of fascism. So yeah, let's rock it. Yeah. And another theme that just permeates through both the books and the movies of Harry Potter is how an older generation can fail a younger generation and how the younger generation must pick up the mantle of the older generation's mistakes and forge a better world and eviscerate the older generation still fighting for a status quo. And that feels a little prescient. Yeah. To say the least. Um, Not to say that we know all the answers to all the world's problems, because we certainly don't, but we do know a little something about storytelling. And Harry Potter is one of those marquee storytelling franchises that has seeped into the zeitgeist and has become a phenomenon in and of itself, similar to a Lord of the Rings, as you mentioned, or maybe a Star Wars. It is a huge multi-million dollar storytelling universe that means so much to many of us. And while we have never shied away from talking about Harry Potter, this is the first time we're like, we got two months. What do we want to talk about? all Potter, all the time. Yeah, well, and and I'll just say this personally for myself. I've got a Harry Potter tattoo. You know, this is like, 
of the three like pop culture franchises that are the most important to me, this is Harry Potter, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and Star Wars. Uh, I I think Harry Potter is probably the most influential in forming who I am. Uh, like I am who I am because I grew up reading the Harry Potter books because I formed my relationship to authority, to friendship, to love, to power, to acceptance, to inclusion through my relationship to these books and uh, subsequently these movies. And with that in mind, I do just want to acknowledge uh, that unless you've been living under a rock for the last couple of years and you've never seen Twitter, uh, the author of the Harry Potter series, J.K. Rowling, has unfortunately made some very, very problematic and very wrong comments about the transgender community. Uh, and I just want to start this process by publicly disavowing those comments. We do not align with J.K. Rowling's comments about trans people. Uh, trans women are women. Trans men are men. It is very, very important to us uh, that we state that at the beginning of this. And I do believe that her comments in recent years have been directly in opposition to the spirit of inclusion that she created with her story universe. So it makes me sad that she said those things. Um, that being said, we're going to be donating our Patreon uh, earnings this month to the Transgender Law Project, and I will link them below if you want to match us or consider a donation as well for uh, legal uh, representation for trans people and for furthering the trans agenda. Awesome. I couldn't uh, be happier to doing this. And we're probably going to be talking about Harry Potter because there's eight movies for two months, and I'm just going to put us on the hook. We're going to do it next month too, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, while we're doing the Harry Potter uh, franchise and discussing the movies, we're going to be donating all of our Patreon to trans rights specifically. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and, you know, we stand with trans rights. They're human rights. Absolutely. And this podcast believes in human rights and elf rights. And elf rights. <laughs> and elf rights. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Do you have any other plugs you want to do to start us off? Like follow us on Twitter. Yeah, just uh, just follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Everything else that you can find for us is going to be on MidnightMyth.com, including that Patreon link and uh, blogs and a link to our merch store if you wanted to support us. Best thing you can do for us, hands down, is to leave a rating or a review. Uh, so if you love what you hear, if you like what you're listening to and you want to help other people find the podcast, uh, head over to Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, drop us five stars and a couple of words about what you like. It really, really helps us and it makes us feel great. All right. Shall we move on with the briefest of brief recaps? Let's do it. Go for it, Derek. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone is the movie featuring the boy who lived, who is the boy who lives under the stairs in Privet Drive. Harry Potter learns on his 11th birthday that he is actually a wizard and his life among the non-magic users is a sham. He then gets initiated into the magical world by a half-giant named Hagrid who brings him to places such as the Leaky Cauldron, Diagon Alley, Gringart's Back, and Ollivander's Wand Shop. Harry Potter then goes to the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, pardon me, and gets sorted into the House of Gryffindor. As a new Gryffindor, he learns how to ride a broom. In fact, he learns how to play the game Quidditch, and he starts learning magical spells. All the while, he and his new two best friends, Ron and Hermione, start learning of a secret plot by one of the Hogwarts professors, 
presumably Professor Snape, trying to steal something called the Sorcerer's or Philosopher's Stone, something that would give whoever possesses it the ability to have eternal life. Harry and Ron and Hermione, convinced that Professor Snape, pardon me, is their man, end up going through a series of trials, including besting Fluffy the gigantic Cerebus, going through these tangled, uh, uh, what are they called again? Devil's Snare. The Devil's Snare that tries to kill them, um, flying through a bunch of keys that try to kill Harry Potter, playing the most deadly game of chess ever, and then Harry confronting what he thought would be Professor Snape, who turns out to be Professor Quirrell, who has the spirit of Voldemort living in him. In this, Harry confronts Voldemort for his second time in his life and ends up defeating Quirrell, the ghastly shade of Voldemort, through the power of love, a deep magic that lives in Harry from his mother's sacrifice. It ends up with Harry passing out, waking up in the hospital wing of Hogwarts, talking to Dumbledore about how love has saved Harry and that the sorcerer's slash philosopher's stone has been destroyed. The movie ends with Harry talking to his friend Hagrid on a platform about to board the Hogwarts Express in which Hagrid hands to Harry a photo album of Harry as a baby with his parents and Harry gets to return back home, master of the magic and master of the regular world. I'm not going home though. Not really, he says, because Hogwarts is his true home. Excellent recap. What a what a fun uh, what a fun movie to revisit. Uh, almost twenty years later, you know, last week we talked about Donnie Darko, which came out in the same year in two thousand one, uh, which we were just remarking about what a crazy year for movies that was. Um, but it really did put me right back into being. I was eleven years old when it came out. I was Harry's age. Uh, you know, I, I, I saw it the night that it came out cause I was so excited to see one of my favorite books come to life and really was swept away by the charm and magic and felt like I really was going to Hogwarts for the first time. Uh, so thank you for that recap and for revisiting this with me. Absolutely. It has been a pleasure with me as well. A question that I'm going to ask you, which we've asked pretty recently of all of the works we've done in particular, when we examine a text that's a little older, is does this movie hold up? Well, um, let's be real, not really. Um, like I said, it does kind of transport me back to being 11 years old and being uh, charmed by the magic and the sweetness and the innocence of the whole thing. Um, but it, it's not really a great movie. And I uh, it wasn't really a great movie at the time. It's a decent adaptation of the book, but it's a very straight adaptation of the book that doesn't take a whole lot of um, artistic liberties, especially when you look back on the series as a whole. It really started to take shape a few movies later. It started to uh, develop its voice, develop its visual style a little bit better. Uh, and this movie just doesn't really do that. I think it is a it, it, it's a great try and it's a great kickoff to the series, um, but it has some pretty unfortunate visual effects. Uh, the child's performances are are childish performances. That's kind of all we can expect of these ten year old, eleven year old kids, and they eventually get better. We know they get better, but when I watch this, I I love it because of what it meant to me at the time. And I love it because I know that it gets better. What I found striking in this rewatch, and 
just to put this uh, out there, Laura and I rewatch Harry Potter movies a lot, but we never pick the Sorcerer's Stone. And what I was really just amazed by was how bad the movie looks. Like, it is not a good-looking movie. No. And I remember when I saw it being floored by the world that Christopher Columbus created in this Harry Potter universe and thinking this movie looked phenomenal. It really does not hold up the way it looks. It looks a little cheap, a lot of it. None of the, I won't say none of the, but in particular, the graphics of anyone on a broom really look cheap. They're like bad video game graphics. And when they do practicals, to their credit, when they do practical effects, they look good. And there are some elements of the production design that are really strong. Uh, It just doesn't quite come together and it doesn't have its own aesthetic style. It doesn't have a a cinematic style. It It has art direction that is good, but it doesn't have a cinematic style. And, you know, for as much as I love the kids as actors and what they grew into... Yeah, I mean, they are they are definitely children, and this is definitely their worst performance, and I feel really bad picking on children performances, but we've done movies with children where the children actors have been phenomenal. This movie is not that. No, no, and to their credit, like, they do get so much better, and I, I would not change that casting for anything in the world, uh, and it is really incredible that, uh, you know, you pick these kids out when they're 10 years old and they grew up to be really p- synonymous with these roles and really perfect. Yeah, I totally agree. And like, uh, yeah, but it's just striking to me going back, rewatching this and being like, wow, I love this movie and this movie, many aspects of it do not hold up. Yeah, absolutely. It's still absolutely worth talking about and it still has a, a lovely story. Uh, and it, I think it's it's really, really rich for our analysis. Sure, yes. The fundamental story is there. The building blocks are there. The, um, the children grow into the actors that we all love. The special effects obviously get better. But to put it into context, we were wondering, like, these effects look bad. But that at first, we're, we were thinking, well, this is really old. Yes, 20 years ago, everything looked this bad, right? And then we watched Fellowship of the Ring, which came out in the same year, and we're like, yeah. oh no, not all the effects in 2001 look bad. Some of them still look great. It's just this movie. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, we're not here to beat up the movie. Uh, it was just, it was striking how little of it held up. That being said, where would you like to start in terms of analysis? Well, I want to have some fun with this one because there are some... Uh, really exciting historical and mythological things that J.K. Rowling weaves into the world building of her universe uh, in every single Harry Potter book. And it starts with this one. And it starts with something that we haven't really had the opportunity to discuss at length on our podcast, but is such a rich and like huge uh, wealth of legendary material. And that's the Philosopher's Stone. Like, let's talk about the Philosopher's Stone. Is that okay with you, Derek? I would love to start there. So the movie calls it the Sorcerer's Stone. Yes. The British version calls it the Philosopher's Stone. So let's start here. What's the difference, if any? There, there is no difference. Uh, the Philosopher's Stone is the t- Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone is the title of the original novel that was released in the UK and elsewhere. The American publishers changed it to the Sorcerer's Stone, uh, and then the movie took on that title. 
the only real difference that that produces is that it uh, it removes the like actual historical context from the title. However, if you watch the movie and you read the the American version of the book, the Sorcerer's Stone is referring to the legendary material surrounding the Philosopher's Stone. There is no difference. It's just a change of name. Um, so we can absolutely use them interchangeably in this context, if that makes sense. Totally. So what is the Philosopher's Stone? As we learn in the movie, it is a legendary substance associated with alchemy uh, that is supposed to be used to transmute base metals into gold. It's also a key element in the elixir of life, which grants immortality, which means you can never die. I know what it means. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Uh, References to the Philosopher's Stone reach back to the ancient world. So we start hearing about it written down in about uh, 300 CE, but some of the accounts of it say the stone was given to Adam, the first man, by God, so presumably way back before the ancient world. Uh, the earliest writings come from this guy, Zosimos of Panopolis, who wrote the first books on alchemy. He was a Greek alchemist born in Roman Egypt, living around 300 CE. Zosimos actually gives us one of the first definitions of alchemy, where he defines it as, quote, the composition of waters, movement, growth, embodying and disembodying, drawing the spirits from bodies and bonding spirits within bodies, end quote. I just love the poetry of that definition, and it does feel kind of in line with the magic in Harry Potter. Uh, Now, today the word alchemy has a slightly negative connotation due to its long history of charlatanism, Particularly in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, there were certainly a lot of frauds who said, I've got the Philosopher's Stone. I can turn any metal into gold or I can give you the elixir of life. Hire me, king, and take me to your court and I will produce the elixir of life for you. But we also have to remember that alchemy formed the basis of natural philosophy, science. Alchemy is the proto-science. It's the thing that led to chemistry the thing that helped us understand and harness the natural world. And really the the origins of this, people were just looking to discover and reveal the mysteries of the universe. So however mystical the origins of this pursuit, without alchemy, we don't have modern day science. Now we can track the perceptions of the Philosopher's Stone throughout history. It's an artifact that... um, Not unlike the Holy Grail, it takes on a bunch of different qualities and different characteristics based on who's telling the tale. Uh, One of the better known accounts comes from Paracelsus, who's one of the more famous alchemists, who believed that it was an undiscovered element, uh, which he called the alkahest, and that the four elements of air, uh, earth, fire, and water were all derived from this element, the philosopher's stone, this kind of Uh, undivided one, this ultimate substance. Now, some alchemical texts will instruct the reader in how to prepare the Philosopher's Stone. They'll offer recipes for how to create it as a solution for different purposes. So you might be using it to create silver, or you might be using it to create gold, or the intent might be the elixir of life. Um, And the creation of the stone was called by the alchemist who uh, pursued it the magnum opus, or the great work. The The preparation of the Philosopher's Stone was the great work of any alchemist. 
Uh, once you've prepared it, it might be white or red or orange. It might be saffron colored. It might uh, take on qualities of glass or it might be better prepared into a powder. There were a ton of different representations of it. And sometimes those corresponded to the different purposes. But there's also a metaphorical representation of the stone that I'll post uh, some pictures of this on social media because I think it's really great to see in the context of Harry Potter because uh, it takes the form of a geometric symbol. So it's a circle uh, within which is a triangle, within which is a square, within which is another circle. And when I describe it, it probably doesn't really manifest in your mind, but I'll post some pictures like I said. It looks really similar. You can't help but notice to the symbol of the Deathly Hallows, which will become extremely important later in this series. So I absolutely have to call that out. Yeah, totally. Very cool. Now, what does Nicholas Flamel have to do with this? Uh, Nicholas Flamel is a real guy, too. This is a real historical figure who was a 14th century French scribe. Uh, like he had a, a publisher's company and he would uh, transcribe or print um, texts. And it wasn't until after his death that he gained a reputation for being an alchemist. So there was no evidence that he really was in this trade. But after he died, centuries later, people uh, reported sightings of him and his wife. And the legend that grew around him was that he and his wife had discovered a text that had the recipe for the stone. And they had translated it because they had this, you know, history as scribes and translators and publishers. And so they had created the Philosopher's Stone and lived forever. Oh, that's really, really interesting. I had no idea that J.K. Rowling was pulling from an actual, you know, legendary alchemist in Nicholas Femel. Can I ask you a question? Please. Why do you think J.K. Rowling uses the Philosopher slash Sorcerer's Stone based upon real legends? Um, because... It seems to me that so much of Harry Potter is sort of whole cloth invented, you know, and it's a product of her imagination. Yet in this one instance, she's bringing in an actual legendary artifact based upon, you know, ancient alchemy. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question because uh, I think there is this balance throughout the Harry Potter series of J.K. Rowling creating uh, these world-building elements out of whole cloth and pulling from real-world history, real mythology, and legends. Uh, and I think that looking at those gives us some insight into what she's trying to do in creating this world. And I think the Philosopher's Stone and the connection with alchemy in particular accomplishes a lot of things in this first installment of the series. For one, it grounds us in, you know, this legend that's been around since at least 300 CE, something that is ancient. Uh, you can almost imagine uh, the magical tradition and the scientific tradition sort of branching off from alchemy in different ways, uh, which is a, a way that I like to think about it. Uh, but alchemy, like I said, is uh, this human pursuit of revealing the mysteries of the universe, of revealing the secret things, like any esoteric tradition, it's humans looking for a way to unlock the secrets that are unknown, whether that is a scientific pursuit or a magical pursuit. And I think that uh, grounding 
Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone in this very particular legendary tradition sets up the series as this quest for knowledge, as this quest for the revelation of mysterious things. And this first installment is more than anything, the revelation of a hidden and secret world to Harry and to us. Every single uh, scene in this story is Harry discovering some unknown secret, whether it's about himself and his legacy or about the world that he is stepping into. And that's a world that has lived alongside ours for all of time, as far as we are concerned. It's just lived in this secret way. So like an alchemist, he's discovering the Philosopher's Stone, the thing that unlocks the mysteries of the universe. You know, it's interesting that you say that because it kind of brings me as a segue into what I've been thinking about when it comes to Harry Potter's and the Sorcerer's or Philosopher's Stone. Would you permit a segue? Absolutely. There's just one thing I want to say real quickly. Okay. Which is that Permission denied. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just want to add to that. We also get set up as a quest narrative, right? A quest for artifacts, a quest for secret places. That's something that we'll be able to track throughout the whole series. Uh, how... Uh, how real legendary artifacts influence uh, the, the quests for Harry Potter and how invented legendary artifacts are created on the basis of real legendary artifacts. Yeah, that's an, that's a really good call out. I want, actually, before I get to the point I wanted to yeah, bring up, yeah, yeah. I, that made me think of a follow-up question. What do you make of the fact that at first Dumbledore is trying to protect and hide the Sorcerer's Stone from Voldemort in the idea that Voldemort might want to get to this stone and then use the stone to regain a body, which is in fact exactly what happens. And then at the end of it, Dumbledore makes the decision to destroy the stone. Do you think there's anything that we can look at? So if we understand the metaphor of the stone as the way to unlock secret knowledge and the way to get to rejuvenating energies, life-giving properties, that the stone is itself knowledge. And the fact that Dumbledore then destroys it, should we read that as Dumbledore saying, no, there's, there is knowledge that we are not permitted to gain. This, in fact, is too powerful. These energies are too rejuvenating because um, someone like Voldemort could then hoard it and use it to gain immortality. Wow. I mean, that's a great, that's a really great question. And I have a slightly different reading of it, but I'm glad that you brought up that perspective. I'm not saying that's, I'm, yeah. I'm just asking the question. Yeah, no, I think that's great. That sort of, um, is there forbidden knowledge out there that we should not have access to, um, which I, I think is something that we may want to come back to later in later installments of Harry Potter. In this one, I definitely read it as, um, so Voldemort, this dark lord figure, is in pursuit of immortality at all costs. He will drink the blood of a unicorn if it will sustain him a little bit further, even though that is like the greatest crime against nature and magic that you can imagine. Um, and so, yeah, we have to protect this stone. It's an artifact. It is a legendary substance. We have to protect this stone because we have to preserve it as this magical knowledge. But then there is this shift that happens behind the scenes once you see that the 
stone can't actually bring uh, can actually bring a lot of good to the universe. It has sustained this Nicholas Flamel guy for you know six hundred years, but what actual good is that doing? And something that is key to Harry Potter uh, is the acceptance of death. Is pitting uh, you know the Dark Lord whose only pursuit is fleeing from death. That's what his name literally means when you translate it from French: flight from death, uh, who fears death more than anything, versus the more life-affirming light side of the magic user, which says death is not a bad thing. We will embrace life and light and love as much as possible, but when death comes, we will accept it graciously. So he and uh, Dumbledore and Nicholas Flamel have a chat and realize, okay, it's not really worth preserving this thing that is just prolonging your life for no reason there's no reason to go on living forever and it's not actually a noble pursuit to live forever then in that respect we should maybe read the sorcerer's stone not as unlocking of secret alchemic knowledge and rejuvenating life force but rather as a perversion of life force because if the the, the narrative is telling us we have to accept death and the sorcerer as the natural order, as the right order, and the sorcerer's stone upends that order. It is not actually something that we can gain, um, you know, in terms of unlocking the secrets of life. In fact, it destroys the secret of life, which is to accept one's death. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting. Th- that's great. And what what is the final thing that we're left with in this movie? Right? What's the greatest power of all? What's the most powerful magic? It's love. Uh, you know, it's it's this thing that is left over from Lily Potter's sacrifice that is infinitely more powerful than the Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, so I think you're actually you've got you're right on the pulse. Yeah. Even Hermione says to Harry after Ron um, falls in the chess game. You're a great wizard, Harry. And he's like, no, no, you're actually a great wizard. You know all these spells. And she goes, there's more powerful magic than spells. Yeah, friendship and bravery. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're totally on the money here. So uh, so we're setting this up as, yes, magic is this pursuit of uh, the secrets of the universe. But what we're going to reveal at every stage of Harry's journey is that, I mean, you click your heels together. You've had the power to go home all along, Harry. Like you've had the power inside you this entire time. And there's no alchemical esoteric secret to it. It's just freaking love. And Harry's innate power and magic is what makes him, to those who seek to upend the order, makes him dangerous to the touch. His magic radiates that his skin itself becomes the weapon needed to defeat Quirrell and then ultimately destroy the stone. What a fruitful Midnight Myth boomerang you just introduced. That yeah, was great. Yeah, this was not a planned topic. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right, so let me talk about some some other stuff, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Because I the, permit you your segue now. Thank you. I'm glad I got segue permission. You should know, Midnight Myth listeners, this has always been and always will be Laurel's show. Stop. And all I do is just ask her questions. No, but let me... um. Let me talk a little bit about some of the things I saw. So the the Philosopher's Stone, the Sorcerer's Stone, is a key symbol to unlocking some of the symbolic language in this film and book. But there's also some other symbols, and there's one in particular that really jumps out to me. And I'm going to take a jo- Joseph Campbellian lens. So we're going to dust off a hero with a thousand faces and ask ourselves, what is the way we can understand Harry Potter 
through Campbell's lens of the mono myth. And this entire book to me feels like one stage in the hero's journey. Yeah. And if we can look at the um, the entire film series as one journey, which I think we can, what is the main thing we see? What is Harry Potter doing? What phase is he in? And I really think it's it's crossing the threshold to get to the hero's initiation. So there are some literal thresholds we see Harry cross um, time and time again in this movie. The first being crossing the doorway and accepting the call to adventure with Hagrid and embracing that he is a wizard. That's literal threshold one. That There's actually so many I'll probably forget some. Then there's the threshold into Diagon Alley in which uh, you need the secret hidden knowledge of how to tap your wand and where to tap it to cross that threshold. There's the threshold of the bank vault which unlocks Harry, his actual tangible material wealth. For the first time, he crosses and sees, hey, he's actually a wealthy wizard. Then there is the platform nine and three quarters, something that he needs to figure out and figure out how to cross, which gets him to the next threshold, which is the lake crossing into Hogwarts. Then there's the entrance into the Great Hall, And then lastly, there is the threshold of crossing the Cerebus, Fluffy, and going into the subterranean caverns to go through the trials um, that the hero needs to gain the Philosopher's Stone. So every one of these uh, requires some sort of a mentor figure, some sort of a person to help usher Henry through. So whether it's Hagrid who leads him through the door and through the river, whether it is um, Molly Weasley teaching him how to cross the platform of nine and three quarters, and whether it's the sorting hat, you know, putting him into Gryffindor, or if it's Oliver Wood teaching him Quidditch and walking him through to the first Quidditch field, except for the last one, which is the Cerebus, which is Fluffy which Harry, Ron, and Hermione need to figure out on their own. They need to do that on their own. They no longer need the mentors to guide them through this threshold. They need to cross it themselves to initiate into these challenges. So I want to bring out a quote from Campbell that I think can be instructive about understanding the thresholds, what they symbolically mean, their universal language, and then apply that to Harry Potter. And here's the quote, quote, with the personifications of his destiny to guide and aid him, the hero goes forward in his adventure until he comes to the threshold guardian at the entrance to the zone of magnified power. Such custodians bound the world in four directions, also up and down, standing for the limits of the hero's present sphere or life horizon. Beyond them is darkness, the unknown and danger, just as beyond the parental watch is the danger to the infant, and beyond the protection of his society, danger to the members of the tribe. The usual person is more than content, he is even proud, to remain within the indicated bounds, and popular belief gives him every reason to fear so much as the first step into the unexplored." A thing I want to pull out here is how Harry gets defined as the hero, as the one that chooses to go into the threshold, versus the normal people who are content and even proud to stay within their boundaries. And there's two pieces of contextual evidence to support that's what's happening in these thresholds. One, most obviously, are the Dursleys. 
Harry's aunt and uncle and cousin who reject magic. They are aware that magic exists and that their nephew slash surrogate son should be initiated into the magical world at some point, but they are fearful of that threshold and are content to guide him and warn him against going into that threshold. And quite simply, they have evidence for this. Why? James and Lily died because they went into that threshold. So as much as the Dursleys are terrible surrogate parents and absolutely abusive towards Harry, their desire to protect him from magic is not one of their abuses. In fact, it is probably their only perceived kindness. They want to keep him in the tribe of normal because the outside world is dangerous and threatening. The world of magic killed James and Lily Potter. They can't let Harry do that. Now, there's no justification for them to be locking him in a cupboard and being abusive and treating him like Cinderella. So I'm not trying to justify the Dursleys, but in this symbolic way, it is an act of perceived kindness. Yeah, and Petunia at least will become a little more complex and will start to understand her regret uh, over not joining Lily in the uh, you know the world of magic, but also her regret over losing a sister. Absolutely. That's more in the books than in the yeah, movies. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, totally, which I think is a great scene in the, the later books. So piece of evidence number two about the threshold is, and this one's a little more subtle, but nevertheless, one examined is there, is Neville Longbottom's desire to stop Ron, Hermione, and Harry from going on their quest for the stone. He, in the Gryffindor common room, says, you, you are going to step out. You're going to break the rules. It's going to hurt Gryffindor house. You are making a crime against our tribe, the Gryffindors. We will lose the Quidditch Cup. We will lose material gain if you go out on this adventure. And I, a member of the Gryffindor tribe, cannot allow you to do it. And Harry and Hermione and Ron, what do they have to do? They have to curse Neville in order to go on their adventure. So that's another example of the the normal, those that are the non-heroes wanting to protect the heroes and being afraid of the threshold. I'll add one more thing here, which is that in the uh, opening feast for the year at Hogwarts, uh, Dumbledore says the third floor corridor is off limits to those who do not wish to die a most painful death. So we get an outright warning that says this area is forbidden but then some 11-year-olds are able to get in there with just a basic spell, Alohomora. So there's nothing actually keeping kids away from a three-headed dog that could murder them, except for a basic first-year spell. Uh, so everyone who is staying away from it is also lumped into those normal people who are content to follow the rules and avoid calls to adventure. Harry, Ron, and Hermione are not like that. They are going to pull out that spell and they are going to go down the trap door, even though they've been expressly warned against the danger. Absolutely. Now, the threshold guardians that Campbell is talking about are typically monsters. They are ogres. They are sirens. They are the beasts that will stop you from accessing that. And in this way, I mean, it's quite literal. The dog who guards hell in Greek mythology is there stopping Ron and Hermione from getting to their threshold, right? So there's a literal threshold guardian. And then they have to go through their trials, which initiate Harry 
into the magical world where his skin becomes innately so powerful that he is beyond the spells of the ordinary wizard. And he gets to then possess the stone and then stop Voldemort from um, stealing life rejuvenating energies. Um, So I really think that is one of the best ways to understand the role this movie plays as crossing Harry into the threshold. Another thing that Campbell talks about that is very interesting is that the hero crossing the threshold is ego annihilism. So the hero must annihilate, they must destroy their ordinary self to become their heroic self, right? And this sounds a little counterintuitive um, when you first think about it. You're like, how does Harry destroy himself? But quite literally, Harry must deconstruct every core aspect of his ego in order to become Harry Potter the hero. Whether that is, I don't know what magic is, and my parents died in a car crash, and I'm an unwanted and unloved child, and that is his core identity, that gets shattered immediately when Hagrid says, you're a wizard, Harry? And he's just like, no, I'm not. I'm just Harry. Just Harry. And whether then he he has to learn that more people know about his life history than himself. This is another affront that helps destroy his ego. And then he has to learn how to allow a friend to sacrifice himself in the chess game. Another affront on the core conditions of what it means to be Harry Potter and a Gryffindor who is brave and protects his tribe. So Harry must become a new person in order to fill the mantle of the hero. And that person radiates with innate power. And which is why Harry doesn't need a wand or a spell or a trick in order to defeat Voldemort at the end. His servant just need touch his flesh and they melt. And what's the final trial that Harry faces in the dungeons? It's a mirror. It's a reflection of himself, which we've seen earlier in the story. Uh, The mirror of Erised, which shows us the deepest, most desperate desires of our hearts. Uh, And earlier in the story, Harry looked into the mirror and saw himself with his parents alive and well and part of a loving family. Now when he confronts the mirror again at the end of the story, he doesn't see himself with his parents. He sees himself getting the Philosopher's Stone, the Sorcerer's Stone, to save the world. And Dumbledore's magic here is that only someone who wants the stone uh, to get it, but not to use it, would be able to have it. A really clever piece of magic that Dumbledore is very proud of. Uh, So ego is left at the door, right? Harry goes in with a selfless mission of let me save this piece of magic from this evil entity. Uh, so I think, yeah, you're, you're right on the money here. Another thing I want to call out here in this, this Campbell quote really just like resonated when I read it. Um, I actually went back to a hero of a thousand faces and read the chapters on the threshold and the initiation and the hero's trials to be like, Is this really what I remember? And oh, yeah, it is. But so the custodians, the threshold guardians, such custodians bound the world in four directions, also up and down. This is obviously to refer to north, south, east and west. But 
what happens when Harry crosses the threshold into Hogwarts. They immediately get sorted into four ways in Gryffindor, Hufflepuff, Slytherin, and Ravenclaw, both fundamental makeups of four different wizard types, and that these wizard types will then come to define who these wizards are. So there is that, and then there is the up and down. Well, Ron and Hermione and Harry, in order to go through the trials into to acquire the stone, they must literally travel down. Then Harry must uh, into the cavern. They must pass Fluffy and then the uh, the Devil Snare plants, and then Harry has to travel physically up right on his broom to get the key in order to unlock the door. So we see these directional symbols here. Um, as the crosses the threshold into the four point directions of the four houses and then the literal travels of up and down to get the stone. I think that's really cool. If you also reflect on the role of Gryffindor, Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw and Slytherin as four cardinal directions, but also as uh, existing on an axis up and down, Gryffindor is in a tower. Uh, there are so many towers in Hogwarts that you have to ascend to, like the Owlery and so on, the observatory, uh, potions and the Slytherin common room are in the dungeons. Uh, so there is certainly this traveling, um, upward and downward upon this axis to these lofty, ambitious, uh, brave heights of Gryffindor, to these uh, maybe baser instincts that are associated with Slytherin. Just uh, an interesting reflection there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that, too. You know, so I think there's a lot going on while we agreed that, you know, of the Harry Potter movies, I mean, I think it's easy to say this one is objectively the least successful. Yeah, it's it's weaker. Yeah. You know, in, in terms of just like the raw technique of making a movie. It's crazy that I love this movie when I go back and I watch it. I'm like, oh, wow, there's a lot in this movie that doesn't hold up well. But the symbolic language um, is in particular in the Cambillian lens, as well as coupling that with the role of the Philosopher's Stone in our actual mythic and legendary history. I think there's a lot of treasure to mine from the Midnight Myth lens in, in this film. I absolutely agree. You know, before we wrap up, uh, it's no secret that in addition to Harry Potter, I also have quite the obsession with medieval literature and the Arthurian legend. Uh, if you've listened to any episodes of this podcast, then you know that and you know that I can't help bringing it up when it comes up. But uh, one uh, aspect of the Arthurian legend that I wanted to bring into this conversation about the Sorcerer's Stone is, uh, I, I believe I've talked about this on the podcast briefly before. I know I've written a blog on it, but there's a motif known as the Fair Unknown within the Arthurian legend, which refers to to uh, characters who are uh, of noble blood, but who are raised away from noble surroundings. So Arthur himself would be considered a fair unknown. The character Percival would be considered a fair unknown. And then there is literally a character named Sir La Belle Inconnue, Sir the Fair Unknown uh, in uh, the French tradition. And these characters are usually taken away from their uh, their birthplace, their parents who are of royal blood and are raised in humble uh, surroundings. So they're raised with no knowledge of the fact that they have this noble legacy, that they may ascend to great things, uh, and they're raised among common folk. But 
their abilities, their chivalry, their bravery can't help but shine through. And I think that is represented really well in Harry as a character, too, because he is born to a really prominent wizarding family in the Potters. His father is pure blood and is descended from greatness. And he came from this incredibly traumatic and well-known and famous experience when he was a baby and was plucked out of those surroundings and raised among normal muggles who give him no idea of the world that he's about to be initiated in. But when he goes to the zoo, he can't help but vanish the glass and set a python that he can speak to on his cousin Dudley. Magic manifests itself even without his control. Hagrid asks him, did you ever make anything happen? Anything you couldn't explain? Uh, and, and Harry says, yes, you know, that has been manifesting in me without my control for my entire life. Uh, so that's one thing I want to keep my eye on as we go through the series. How does Harry conform to these interesting archetypes of literature and mythology and legend? But how often does that reaffirm the fact that, no, this isn't about revealing magical secrets. This is about people this is about friends. This is about bravery. This is about courage. And this is about one boy becoming a hero. And that may seem inevitable, and the legends may tell us that that's inevitable. But at every stage, Harry's going to make the choice to become the hero that he needs to be rather than just sliding into uh, the heroic path. Yeah, I want to bring up one other thing, too. Yeah, and yeah. thank you for sharing that, that I forgot that I wanted to talk about. Um, with Joseph Campbell, and it's a a phase that the hero will commonly go through on their way to the threshold, yeah. which is um, Campbell talks about the meeting with the goddess. This is a point where the hero receives a prophecy and they get mentorship, and it's typically in the form of a female deity. And we don't see necessarily a female deity in this, but there is a way that this happens to Harry, and that's in his scene with Ollivander at, yeah. the, at the wand shop. So Ollivander is absolutely a prophet. Ollivander remembers every wand he has ever sold to every wizard. He can speak to the wands directly, and the wands speak back to him. And upon matching Harry with his faded wand, he gives a prophecy that great things will happen to Harry and that he is inexorably linked to the wizard who murdered his parents and tried to murder him. And he gives Harry this destiny and says, we can expect that great things will come from you too, based upon this initiation and the prophecy of the wand. And that is, I think, very analogous to the meeting with the goddess, though Ollivander is obviously a man, um, and all, but Ollivander is old in this dusty shop, handing out magical artifacts with perfect memory and clarity. So I think that is another just uh, interesting symbolic scene that I wanted to talk about and wanted to bring up. Yeah, and I think once again that drives home that yes, there is going to be prophecy. Yes, we're going to expect great things from Harry, but it's not going to happen on its own. It's going to happen because Harry is good uh, and Harry is kind-hearted and Harry will choose the right path at every opportunity. When he gets the sorting hat put upon his head, another ritual of initiation, there are two paths ahead of him, Slytherin and Gryffindor. And he says, not Slytherin. You could be great, you know, says the hat. 
But he doesn't want to be in Slytherin. He wants to go the right way. He wants to be with good people. He wants to be with humble folk like the Weasleys. And he wants to uh, show that bravery and courage is more important to him than riches and ambition. Uh, so, yeah, Harry Potter. Absolutely. <laughs> Any final thoughts? Uh, this has been really awesome. I am super excited to be embarking on this journey with you, Derek. And I think this has been a really interesting way to kick off talking about thresholds, talking about alchemy, talking about uh, the hidden secrets of the universe and how the rituals of initiation may unlock those for us or may unlock even more powerful forms of magic than we can imagine. Uh, I just can't wait to see what comes next. Yeah, absolutely. And until next time, be kind. Be kind.